0: Welcome to Shift, the podcast designed to inform and educate you about weight loss. In each episode, I will interview an expert in weight loss, from doctors to dietitians, as well as people who have experienced successful and long-term weight loss themselves. It is our goal to help all our listeners get the real facts and latest knowledge on how to lose weight effectively and sustainably plus some inspiring stories to help motivate you to start now. I look forward to joining you on the journey. Hi there and welcome to Shift It. I'm so glad you could join me for today's episode. My name is Glennis Wynette, CEO and founder of Formulate, And today I'm excited to be talking to Dr. John Jorgensen, one of Australia's most experienced bariatric and upper GI surgeons, and the director of bariatric surgical services at St. George Hospital in Sydney. We will be talking about bariatric surgery and focusing on the various types of surgery, their benefits, and what to expect pre and post surgery. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. Jorgensen. Welcome, John.
1: Thank you very much, and thanks for having me.
0: It's my pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. To start with, John, can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and what you do specifically?
1: Well, I'm an upper GI surgeon, so my training initially is general surgery, and then I specialised in upper GI surgery, which is surgery of the esophagus, stomach, pancreas, gallbladder and liver. And then in the last 20 years, I've also been involved in weight loss surgery, which obviously involves the esophagus and the stomach. And that's really how it's sort of evolved. The reason why I got involved in weight loss surgery is that the endocrinologist at St. George Hospital asked if we could set up some sort of service to deal with the severely obese and help them in their management and rather than just doing it sort of ad hoc. I took a 12-month sabbatical and worked in south of Sweden in a, in a place called Lund, where they have been doing weight loss surgery for a long time, and I learned basically about weight loss surgery because the surgery itself is one aspect, but the sort of totality of management in terms of, pre-op assessment, perioperative care, nutrition, et cetera. a fairly involved, so it's good to have some training in it before you launch into it.
0: Yes, most definitely. And I understand that surgery is not your only passion. I believe you put a lot of emphasis on spending time with your family and passions such as surfing and horse riding. How do you find the balance?
1: Well, balance is difficult, whether you're balancing on a tight rope mm. or trying to balance your life. But I think that it's important to stay balanced because then you can sort of stay healthy and your psychology is obviously better if you have other interests. You just have to make priority to do other things apart from working.
0: Mm. And I suppose essentially being your own boss, you can make those priorities. It's just your choice to...
1: Look, it's, uh, it's easier to have work-life balance when you're at this end of your career. Mm. So I've been a surgeon now uh, since 1995. So I'm at the twilight of my career, if you like, and I have a, a certain uh, reputation, a certain caseload. On the other hand, when you're starting out as a surgeon, nobody knows who you are. You've got to be available all the time. Mm weekends 24-7 so it's much harder for the young people to to control their volume um, and it's been well said that a surgical practice is either going up or it's going down it's very hard to hold it at a sort of steady pace mm. so it certainly takes some effort not to be overwhelmed by uh, surgery because it's very easy just to be at hospital seven days a week
0: if you want to yeah i'm sure i'm sure it's easy to get sucked into that and at the start, you do have to put in the hours and build your reputation to keep that work ticking over. I'm, I'm keen to hear a bit more about how you've seen bariatric surgery evolve over time. So I'm sure it's, it's not as it was when you first trained in Sweden in 2002, you've we seen a lot of changes over time.
1: Yeah, well, the weight loss surgery has certainly evolved as like everything has evolved over the years. And I think in part, our understanding of what obesity is and what it isn't, and therefore how surgery fits into the biological understanding of pathological weight. And then we've got a much better understanding of the surgeries that we do. Initially, you know, when we didn't have a very strong understanding of that, our surgeon's designed operations pretty much from a plumbing perspective, give a smaller stomach, therefore people eat less, give less small bowel, therefore they absorb less, that sort of concept. But that's all shown to be not 100% of the truth now. So we've had the advantage now of real scientists, neurobiological sort of scientists, doing these operations on mice and rats where they can examine exactly what's going on. And it's fairly clear that most of the more complicated operations have quite significant hormonal changes that influence a person's weight. And we've got that data from rats and so on. And of course, rats only eat if they're hungry, not for any other Mm. reason, if you can alter a rat's eating behaviour with an operation, it's because the operation is doing it, not because there's some placebo attached to it.
0: So I think a lot of patients out there have the misconception that it's a purely mechanical cause for why they aren't able to eat as much, but I think it's more of a combination now, isn't it? It's, that's what we've grown to understand from these studies.
1: Yeah, look, I think the, the real question is, is why people can't lose weight because everyone who's overweight would like to lose weight. And as you know, if you interview 100 people on the street, 95 of them are going to be unhappy with their weight, whether they're 1 or 2 kilos overweight or mm. 20 or 100 kilos overweight. Mm, and for all of us, it's extremely difficult to lose weight because from an evolutionary perspective, our bodies have been designed and selected, if you like, to defend weight or to hang on to energy because the ma- one of the major selection pressures is being starvation because you mm. didn't have a secure food source, so you'd have to survive famines and droughts and long winters, et cetera, et cetera. And so our bodies are extremely good at putting on weight and then not losing that weight. I think the first monologue was written by William Banting about hundred years ago, and we could talk about that diet because I think still think it's probably the best diet. But the you know a diet for, to our bodies is a complete new event from an evolutionary perspective, and it really recognises calorie restriction or increased calorie spend by increased exercise as a negative calorie state or energy state. And this is defended very vigorously by a series of hormonal and neurological changes called collectively the famine reaction. And this is a very powerful biological fight back that most people don't have the ability to withstand. And therefore the data on diets is that they all fail by about three years because the biological blowback is relentless it's a bit like asking you know you to stop breathing you you can you volitionally can stop breathing but you'll fail that experiment in about two to three minutes and you'll fail it because your body's going to make you uncomfortable as your oxygen goes down and your CO2 goes up and you become acidotic and it's going to send unpleasant signals to your brain where Mm. you'll say this experiment's ridiculous I'm going to take a breath now Mm, exactly. The same thing happens when people decide not to eat or reduce their calories. Is that initially it's not as overt as not breathing, but it's it just sort of builds up. So your uh, hormonal changes. So the famine reaction is basically your hunger hormone, ghrelin, which is our only real hunger hormone, it just goes up and up and up. And not only are hungry all the time, but when you eat, you feel like you need to eat more, and then there is the gastrointestinal changes and then there are uh, neurological changes based on the sympathetic nervous system it gets dampened you become less active you become more like you want to sit on the couch and not go out your body temperature falls your thyroxine levels fall and your sex hormones change your leptin which is probably the big daddy hormone in all of this uh, starts to fall off which means that everything about you from a neurological perspective and insulin secretion etc is turned on for weight gain
0: Mm. even though you're trying to lose weight
1: (laughs) yeah Yeah, you just yeah yeah Mm. so you're completely against it you know Mm. it's sort of like why people who have lost a lot of weight might find themselves at the fridge eating a tim tam and they don't even know how they got there Mm-hmm. They will dream about food. I mean, one of the Minnesota starvation experiment, which was done looking at conscientious objectors to World War II, so they were all locked away in barracks in Minnesota, and they decided that they would starve these men on, I think, 1,200, 1,500 kilocalories a day to see how to treat the returned servicemen you know, who had been starved in the war. And it's interesting when they studied those, the psychological study of them is that initially being men isolated in barracks, you know, they had pictures of Marilyn Monroe or someone like that up on the wall. And that was their main interest, talking about movie stars. And then as they become the staff, they took those pictures off and put up pictures of hamburgers and they put up you know, started sharing recipes of their mum's apple pie and stuff like this because they were food-obsessed because Mm -hmm. when you're starving, you're not interested in Marilyn Monroe. you're interested in a hamburger.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: And so these hormonal changes are very powerful and they dictate our behaviour. And so asking someone not to eat for the rest of their life and be hungry and miserable is, is a very difficult thing
0: to do. Oh, I see those comments on social media when we promote our products comments are like just stop eating <laughs> well like, if only was that easy your body if as
1: that, it was- that easy we wouldn't have this billion dollar weight loss industry would we no so, you know no. Uh, if it was easy to lose weight everyone would do it but you can sort of understand it from a survival perspective I mean you do see the odd patient that stops eating because they have a you know, malignancy like a little pancreas cancer or something, and that's obviously secreting something. It's extremely difficult to get people to eat if they're anorexic. But most of us, fortunately, have got this drive to eat, which is a, very much in a favor of our survival. But the, unfortunately, the environment's sort of changed uh, now.
0: So in your practice, what techniques have you found are clinically proven to help patients manage their weight?
1: My view of weight loss surgery is that it's basically about weight loss. If you think of the famine reaction as the hypothalamus, which is that part of your brain that dictates all the involuntary functions such as your blood pressure, your heart rate, your pH, mm-hmm. your, also your energy balance. Mm. It doesn't you know, count calories. It's got hormones such as insulin leptin these sorts of things that tell what its energy balance is and it will then try and defend that at best its ability and you could think of morbid obesity as the hypothalamus defending an abnormal weight now mm. so it's very easy for instance if your normal weight to be normal weight because your hypothalamus is defending a normal weight but if it's defending say 150 kilos or 200 kilos mm. then that's that's the disease and so Any intervention that we have, apart from sheer, you know, I'm going to starve myself and have this incredible psychological strength to do that,
0: Mm.
1: has to reduce the magnitude of the famine reaction that accompanies any calorie restriction. Because we know that, of course, to lose weight, you have to eat less than you burn, right? You have to come up with a negative balance to get rid of the excess fat. So to achieve that, you have to be able to sabotage or nullify the famine reaction so that it makes that really difficult task doable for people. And uh, weight loss surgery, as we understand it now, does different surgeries do that in somewhat different ways, but Mm. that's really their commonality, I believe, in in that they minimise the famine reaction.
0: And I'm sure patients are quite relieved when they come and see you and they feel like, oh, I'm opting for surgery. I feel like I may have failed in life as trying to lose weight. And when they hear that information from you about the fact that, you know, they're trying to fight something that they're never going to win, that must be reassuring for them that that surgery is the only option for some of these patients most uh, of these patients yeah
1: absolutely if mm. it, if there was a non-surgical option and there's a few pharmaceuticals these days that are sort of available to people who are not that heavy and they all target the famine reaction you know the, mm. the, whether it's the hunger by duramine or whether it's glp1 with sexenda or, or Zimpik, et etc they all target an aspect of it mm. but you know yes you you're right. I mean, you only have to have a look and see that there are many people who are super successful in every domain of their life apart from their weight. Mm. Or you can just look at politics and work that out. So that the fact that you're very good at managing your life and your sort of higher executive functions doesn't necessarily mean that you can starve yourself and lose weight.
0: Mm, exactly. And
1: people who sort of think that that's easy are people who are not over. Because if you don't have the disease, it's easy to not struggle with it. So I think, yes, I think it's important for people to understand it's not a personal failing. The abnormality is this set point abnormality where the body is defending an abnormal weight. So that's the good news. The bad news, of course, is why do you get an abnormal set point in the first place? I mean, like, the job of the hypothalamus is to keep you healthy, basically to reproduce, because that's the role of life why would it make someone 180 kilos i mean specifically in terms of passing your genes on why would it make women polycystic ovarian which actually makes them is the most morbid obesity or severe obesity is the most common cause of infertility now So the the point is that this is a disease and the hypothalamus is defending a weight that's not in that patient's genetic favour or revenge. And uh, we don't really know why the set point's abnormal. I mean, you would have to assume that there's something wrong in the servo feedback system, as in the hypothalamus is misreading information. So it thinks you should be 150 kilos instead of, say, 90 kilos. And we think that because, when I say we, I think... There's a general belief that what's happened is that genetics haven't changed, but the environment's changed. And mm. what's changed in the environment that triggers this set pointality? And not everyone, because some of us are more resistant, if you like, to the what we sort of broadly call the obesogenic modern environment. Mm. That's a big word and that can <laughs> you know, encompass everything, including food, which we should probably talk about, but also lack of physical activity and lack of sleep and constant stress and UV, you know, light and uh it could be, you know, radioactive radio waves, who knows? with taking out steps out of buildings so you always have to get elevators, you know, not good access Footpaths, particularly in the United States, you can't walk anywhere, you have to go in a car, you know, all the energy saving implements we have, you know, buzz this door open, you don't have to lift doors, yeah. We've just changed so many things to be convenient and comfortable, including always being 23 degrees, for instance, so there's probably a lot of benefit in being cold at times and hot at times. Mm. And uh, so which one of these is targeting an individual specific? What we can say is that the underlying genetic predisposition is critical so some people are going to or get into trouble much more with the modern obesogenic environment and whereas some people are still somewhat capable of being resistant to it although i would say that in the united states now nine out of ten people have got metabolic dysfunction or metabolic disease as in underlying insulin resistance wow,
0: that's concerning isn't
1: it even if they're not overweight because oh, really? obesity is one manifestation of that. So they have hypertension, hyperlipidemia, they get coronary arteries. You know, you see people say, oh, so-and-so had a heart attack and he was really fit and was normal weight yeah. because he still had underlying metabolic dysfunction and probably had dyslipidemia and and, and so on. So the, the obesity is not the only manifestation of it, but certainly the the patients who become morbidly obese have lots of sort of genetic predispositions, and then often they will have more of an environmental challenge as well, which is why we see, for instance, that obesity now is much more prevalent in low socioeconomic groups from mm. a higher socioeconomic groups. And, you know, I think the toxicity of the modern environment is more toxic, you know, and people who are forced almost by value to be eating, you know, fast foods, if you like, as opposed to fresh, real food and so on.
0: This sounds like society is evolving to basically make us lazy, have us move less, have us get quick, calorie, dense foods in a hurry. And basically setting us up for the obesity epidemic that we see so prevalent in the States.
1: Uh oh, well, it's prevalent everywhere mm. in the world apart from North Korea, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And uh, the
0: sounds of it. you know yeah.
1: you know, when you say to be lazy, I think the the, you know we're we're always trying to be more comfortable and more efficient uh, and i think this is is part of the problem i think also uh, the introduction if you like of foods that are not really foods but i could call them drugs or an additive to food such as highly processed sugars and particularly fructose are highly addictive compounds that compound the whole problem because they're not really food as evolution has deemed it. So we don't have good systems for dealing with those sorts of nutrients in our body and of course, they give us, you know, a big hit. So we call, sort of like it, like, a, you know, an ice cream is a friend that doesn't judge, but will give you a little hit. Yes. So it's very, like all drug usage, if you like, it's non-judgmental and it's easy to get. And and so therefore, it's, this is all sort of embroiled in what, why we have a problem these days.
0: Yeah, that's all very fascinating. Can you tell me more about what the comorbidities are associated with obesity?
1: Yeah, so I you want to... Think about obesity as causing two problems. One of them is the sheer physicality of, say, carrying 100 kilos extra. So that's going to cause issues with weight-bearing joints or personal hygiene, probably to some degree sleep apnea and some ventilatory issues just simply because of the size and things. But generally speaking, that's not what, what, what's going to kill you. The, the reason why obesity or severe obesity is called morbid obesity is because the more mortality of people once they go past the bmi 30 which 30 you'd probably be about 20 kilos above your ideal body weight mm-hmm. but at bmi 40 where you're typically about 40 kilos above your ideal body weight your mortality now is about four times higher than it should be for mm-hmm. you and the main driver of that early mortality is the underlying insulin resistance and associated hyperinsulinia which is not only causing your obesity but it is also causing your hypertension, your dyslipidemia, coronary artery disease, your cerebrovascular disease, polycystic ovaries, your fatty liver, uh, etc. So we could go through every organ system like the most common cause of liver transplantation now in the United States is fatty liver. Mm. The most common cause of infertility is polycystic ovarian syndrome, the, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes, which we all know is goes hand in hand with this is also driven mm. by this insulin resistance, hyperinsulinia and all the complications of that, are micro and macrovascular disease, and, you know, needing kidney transplants, people losing their limbs, eyesight, etc., and then cardiovascular disease, which still is the most common cause of death. So coronary artery disease, heart disease and cerebrovascular disease and the real pandemic now that's frightening everyone is Alzheimer's disease which a lot of people would view now called type 3 diabetes because it's all part tied into this metabolic syndrome so this is a whole Disease complex driven, think predominantly by underlying insulin resistance and, high, and the subsequent hyperinsulinia. And that excess insulin has different effects on different cells. Their predominant effect is to store energy, that's the sort of commonality, but mm. they will affect things differently, like in your brain, they'll make you hungry, etc. So there's all of this going on, and this is the sort of underlying metabolic disease really, which is the most dangerous aspect, I think, of obesity.
0: And obviously, after you perform your surgeries and you see these patients lose weight, you're seeing a reversal of a lot of these comorbidities, which must be quite reassuring to see.
1: Yes. So one of the um, you know surprises to everyone is that you can come into hospital with sort of really bad insulin resistance which is type 2 diabetes requiring insulin external exogenous insulin and you can do say an operation like a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass and they can leave three days later without the need for insulin when They might have been on it for five years. So this has really piqued people's interest from a research Mm. as to why is this. And the surgery seems to render people much more insulin sensitive. Now, there's almost certainly lots of confounders in there, not just the surgery, but also the leading pre-op diet, which you know a lot about, particularly a ketogenic preparation such as formulite. And then, of course, the surgery itself. And, you know, because I think it's important to understand that insulin resistance as a disease is not a chronic, unremitting disease like people think of it. So we treat insulin resistance and its consequences like hypertension. We treat it with tablets. Mm. We treat diabetes by giving them more drugs that uh, are more insulin sensitive or produce more insulin. Or even these days, we are more sugar in the urine. So we're treating the end of it rather than the sort of root causes, the what is causing insulin resistance. And why don't we treat that? So I think one of the most interesting papers is published, I think, in 86 or something in in Diabetic Journal by an endocrinologist called Dave from Melbourne. And she was up in Darwin and took 10 full-blood aboriginals Who had the full metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hypertension, hypolipidemia, the central obesity whole business, and put them in a troop carrier and drove them out to somewhere in the bush and left them there for a month. And in a month, when they came back or they observed them, sort of David Attenborough style. To try and work out what they were eating, and so on. They obviously being full bloods and had no food. They had to revert back to their ancestral diet, which by definition out there is basically protein and fat and almost zero carbohydrates. Yes. And they lost all of this metabolic syndrome in about four weeks. So this would tell you that at least to the Australian Aboriginal, the modern processed diet that we uh, that they're having is an acute toxin almost like mm. a poison because its effects can be reversed in four weeks just by reverting to their ancestral diet because this is the diet that their genetics is sort of happy with, if you like. Is
0: this is this what William Banting was recommending? Yeah, William Banting
1: also in the end decided that the carbohydrates were the cause of obesity and uh, he sort of told people to get off white bread and pasta and stuff and just eat mm. meat and vegetables and... Mm-hmm. So he was the sort of first ketogenic guy, really. Yeah. <laughs> hundred years
0: ago. And yeah. we're, we're still <laughs> he learning.
1: lost a lot of weight, yeah. You know, and, and, and but massive weight loss helps because it takes a lot of the fat out of the um, muscles, uh, makes them mm-hmm. more and sensitive and it takes fat out of various organs and of course we reduce the portions people eat we've changed the signaling and hopefully they also change their food choices which I think are as critical perhaps not the weight loss so there's two different ways of looking after how you should eat bariatric surgery but the first 12 months is rapid weight loss if, if you like and we're very concerned about essential nutrition in that phase mm. And then, once the weight loss stabilizes at 12 months, we're concerned about not getting insulin resistance again, because that will inevitably lead to re weight gain. It doesn't matter whether you've had a sleeve gastric, demy- or gastric bypass, or a BPD. If you go back on ultra processed foods, which by definition are high in children, starches devoid of fiber and other protective nutrients, and also often with uh, you know, polyunsaturated fats and trans fats are particularly toxic. You know, They will reignite their insulin resistance even if they've had weight loss surgery and they will regain weight again. And it's not the pouch is too big or the limb length is too short or too mm-hmm. long, the sleeve is dilated. It's because they're making the wrong food choices again. So we spend a lot of time in our 12 months trying to educate people into a sort of what we'd like to call a real food diet. So You can classify foods, uh, I think, these days into three groups, which is real food, processed food and ultra processed food. And real food is the sort of food that your grandparents used to eat. And processed foods is foods that probably got less than three extra ingredients in them, it hasn't been altered too much. Ultra processed foods is when it's been reconstituted completely by food engineers. And I think in the United States, about 80% of calories are consumed from ultra-processed foods. And the body's just got no way of dealing with that stuff. Mm, yeah. So the answer is weight loss surgery to lose weight, but then adoption of a real food diet, which if you do a proper real food diet is effectively going to be a uh, carbohydrate-restricted diet because you're not eating added sugar and starches. So your carbohydrates are predominantly or it should be vegetables and some mm. seasonal fruit. It shouldn't be you know, biscuits, cakes, soft drinks, fast wow. um, cool. rice
0: and all that sort of mm. stuff. So so basically surgery is the tool to help you lose weight in the first place but to maintain that weight loss you have to adopt a healthy lifestyle basically.
1: Yeah, you have to combine it with mm. a, a significant change in your lifestyle. And this is of course the one of the difficulties in bariatric surgery because for people to change their lifestyles is difficult. You know, mm. they've locked into a certain a family as a certain eating paradigm, you know, there are people who are on board not on board that they can't change for instance like working at night like we know that if you're up at night you become insulin resistant if you're not sleeping if you're not having diet proper sleep with the light and dark and there's lots of things people can't change, but there's certainly the people who do the best. I had a patient recently that, that's a good example of this. So he was a high-stress executive working 12 hours a day, and he's like a big man, 160, 180 kilos. And he had the surgery and lost weight and left that job and moved to the country, and now he's a dog walker by trade. So he walks about four hours a day, plus he eats healthy food. So he's lost all his weight and he's maintaining his weight loss because he's mm. been able to change his lifestyle. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's a challenge for lots of people, for sure. But I think, you know, lifestyle change is super important in any medical practice, but doctors are not very big on it because it's so difficult. Patients often want also a quick fix you know they want a tablet for this they want a medication for that they don't want to address the root causes
0: oh exactly other than the health improvements what other changes do you see in a patient like confidence and things like that post weight loss
1: yeah so In in the United States, where the sort of bulk of weight loss surgery experiences come from, they still have a view that obesity is a psychiatric disease, which I think is not right, but they have studied, you know, very extensively the outcomes of weight loss surgery on people's psychology and non-physiologic outcomes, but psychological outcomes. And they invariably demonstrate all of the things you just said, that they, people get improved self-confidence, self-esteem, their uh, ability to get jobs go up significantly, that discrimination against them ceases. Uh, sure. You know, like a lot of people who are overweight will tell you that when they were overweight they go if they go on a food mall and buy some food, everyone looks at them and looks at what mm. they're eating and they just get discriminated because people just make this sort of assumption that people are overweight, are fat and lazy and stupid, you know. Possibly one of the few allowable discriminations still. That- still allowed in society if you like Uh, and and it's based on an ignorance as to the underlying cause I mean we don't usually blame the individual for a pandemic, do we? No, exactly. Like, if someone gets COVID-19, you're not going to say it's their moral failing, are you? No, because everyone's getting it. We don't want everybody... You know, that's where everyone's getting it. It's, yeah, so it's the same thing, you know. It's, it's an it's an epidemic. Yes, we all have an individual responsibility, you know, as much as possible. So the, the COVID-19, we wear masks, we get vaccinated, et cetera. But if you were unfortunate to unfortunately get the virus, it's not like... You, it's not a psychiatric problem is it it's bad luck
0: no exactly
1: so yeah there's a lot of benefits Mm. you know associated but you know the journey in the 12 months is challenging for people as I said there's undoubtedly an element of food addiction I would particularly say Mm. sugar addiction and that people have to give that up and there's you know if they've used sugar and eating as a as a psychological blanket and when that's pulled off then they're going to have to develop better coping strategies such as going for a walk or a a run or doing yoga or meditation or bicycle ride or something rather than eating ice cream or something. I
0: feel like we're
1: talking about me at the moment. You know, and so part of our program is that we have a a bunch of psychologists who are mm -hmm. sort of a fave with this called Fresh Start and they uh, will talk to people both on the net and on the phone and then have some face-to-face meetings. year to help people Uh, sort of like a lifestyle coach sort of thing really because as i said changing your life is difficult for all of us isn't it
0: yeah exactly exactly Um, i'd like to if you could help listeners understand what bariatric surgery options are available these days and why would you recommend one above the other for certain patients Okay
1: so predominantly the most common operations done at the moment is sleeve gastrectomy and roux-en-y and gastric bypass or a bypass of some sort they could be a roux-en-y or a mini bypass and then there's a little emerging increase in uh, what's called a SADI, which is a bit more of a malabsorptive procedure or the pancreas biliary bypass. So in the old days, we used to say that surgeries were either restrictive or malabsorptive. In other words, restrictive means people can't eat much. Malabsorptive means they can't absorb all the food that they eat. We don't sort of think like that anymore because as I said before, most of these surgeries work by hormonal changes and will affect this famine reaction. Mm. So that will blunt the ghrelin response to being on a low-calorie diet. It will actually exacerbate the satiety hormones. And the sleeve and the gastric bypass, both surgeries do that very effectively. And in the lab, according to Randy Seeley, who studies these operations on, on rats, they look very similar in terms of the hormonal changes. Other surgeries where you shorten the amount of small bowel that comes in contact with the food usually have a component of restriction and then an element of that. And that that therefore called malabsorptive operations. And they tend to be a little bit more severe in the sense that you can become mal- malnourished or without mm. both micro and macronutrients if, if people are not careful. So they haven't been all that popular they might represent these days in Australia, say 5% of the totality. I would say that probably 60 to 80% at the moment in Australia is laparoscopic gastric sleeves, about 20% are rule on Y's, and then a small smattering of malabsorptive procedures. Now, why would you choose one over the other? This is a um, controversy. If you go to any bariatric meeting, uh, every surgeon is going to get up and tell you why their operation is the best. Mm. And so usually those sorts of things are solved by randomized controlled trials, but those have not been done in a big sort of volume. But what you can say in the most of the comparative and a few RCTs are around that the sleeve and the gastric bypass at the five year interval will probably do similar weight loss. A sleeve might be four kilos less than the bypass or something like that. But the sleeve is safer to do up front and safer long term uh, because you don't have the small bowel component. So you don't have the risks of small bowel obstruction, stomal ulcers, uh, internal hernias, that sort of thing. So if you then think that the role of weight loss surgery is really just to get a lot of weight off people, and then the weight loss maintenance is about lifestyle choice and eating real food, uh, not about having steatorrhea or malabsorption, then I think that the simplest operation that does for the patient would Is a sleeve gastric in my opinion. We will do gastric bypasses on people who've got bad reflux because the sleeve's not very good in that setting. We will do gastric bypasses in people who um, are redo operations because often that's going to be safer. So if we're converting someone from a failed gastric band, you might do a bypass. And I think we still believe that if you've got type 2 diabetes that's insulin dependent, that you're more likely to come off that insulin if you have a gastric bypass. Bypass than a sleeve. So, they're the sort of reasons why you would do a bypass. So, generally speaking, there's very few contraindications to a sleeve. And the only one, as I said, would be bad reflux and Barrett's esophagus. And, and then, you know, you would get that sort of 10, 20% bypass rate. Personally, I don't do any of the malabsorptive procedures because I think that they're uh, fairly complicated. I feel like you need to do this surgery in the real world. Like I get that if you have a BPD and you're followed up well and you get your nutritional panels every month and you're taking all your multivitamins and your protein supplements, etc., that you can keep people healthy because they almost got like a small bowel, short bowel syndrome. Thing is that you've got to have compliant, trackable patients for that, a bit like people who've had, a say, a liver transplant. You know, when you're running a bariatric practice in the suburbs, we don't have the staff for that sort of thing. No. You know, if the university hospitals had a dedicated metabolic unit and there was some malabsorptive surgery as a component of that, then I think you could possibly pull that off in a safe way but as an individual surgeon it's difficult to be able to keep an eye on that sort of stuff so we tend to want to do the surgery that if the patients disappear off the grid they're not going to hurt themselves yeah, yeah. and the sleeve the sleeve you know is that operation because okay. the long-term side effects of the sleeve are heartburn reflux which you know most people can recognize and treat but it's not lethal and weight regain which is also not lethal uh, Well, it, could be a problem long term, but it's it's you know it's none of those things that you need acute sort of surgical management for. Whereas if you do a gastric bypass on someone and they get a bowel obstruction, then that needs to be dealt with surgically. So if mm-hmm. they're in the country or overseas, then that could be a problem. With a gastric bypass, the micronutrient deficiencies of B12 and iron and calcium tend to be more pronounced mm-hmm. than with sleeve. They're not absent with the sleeve by any means, but they're uh, much more easier to manage. Because you're still sort of connected from A to B the way God put you together. With the malabsorptive operations, then it's anyone's mm, guess what needs mm. to be done there.
0: Now, with regards to micronutrient deficiencies are, I'm assuming they're in some degree present pre-surgery as well so we, you know I have a patient I come into the room so I'm saying to you I want to have a sleeve operation what are the different things that you've got to look at before you take that patient into surgery? Well we, we
1: do a full panel on on them of pretty much everything in terms of micronutrients we look at their iron studies we look at their B12 folate we look at zinc magnesium obviously calcium Phosphate, parathormone, thyroid levels, uh, liver functions, electrolytes, of course, uh, in fasting insulin levels, I'm mm-hmm. super interested in. Uh-huh. And, and we also do leptin levels these days, not um, not that I sort of predicts much. Vitamin D is by far the most common deficiency we see in uh-huh. maybe 80, 90% of people. Uh-huh. And we've learned, you know, how important vitamin D is in this half for all of us yeah. for our community. And it okay. may be one why obesity is one of the risk factors for more of an adverse outcome with COVID-19 is because most of them are vitamin D deficient. So we usually replace that either with big doses or injections. It's very rare. to see clinically relevant vitamin deficiencies in these people. I would say that morbid obesity is a malnutrition of sorts, but because they're consuming significant amounts of food, they usually will have enough of the normal micronutrients. It's also one of the reasons, you know, where I said you've got to get people on real food, it's because when you twelve months out from a sleeve or a gastric bypass, you're gonna have about twelve to fifteen hundred kilocalories of food divided up into three meals. And in those three meals you need to get your RDIs of everything. So you don't have really state room for white bread, rice, biscuits, cakes, you know, you gotta be eating good sources of protein, meat, fish, chicken, turkey, whatever you got to have healthy oils in there, you know, olive oil, avocados. Uh, you, you've got to have a lot of fiber, green vegetables, etc. And then you don't want to be eating empty calories because you don't have the space for that. And this is where, you know, people, when they say, oh, you just eat half a cup of food three times a day. Well, I challenge anyone to eat half a cup of food three times a day and get their RDIs of protein, let alone all the micronutrients. And this is, again, what I like about the sleeve is that people can, eat, you know, about an entree size, a little bit bigger meal. And if that's well selected, that's going to give them all their nutrition, which to me is more important than their weight. Uh, Because if it's good, well chosen food, they're going to be insulin sensitive and they've dealt with their metabolic problem. But we know from, interestingly, from the Swedish obese Subject Study, which tracks people out for 30 years, that as soon as people start to breach that 1500 kilocalorie mark, they will start to regain weight. Now, that's an interesting Figure because you know you you could probably eat two thousand calories a day and not put on weight, and I could probably eat two thousand four hundred or something. Like because we haven't lost weight. If you've lost weight, even though we've come down in weight and we've eliminated some of the famine reaction, part of the famine reaction is to reduce your basal metabolic rate. So people who've come down. You know, from say 160 kilos to 90 kilos, their basal metabolic rate at 90 kilos will be less than someone who's been 90 kilos all their life because they've got exactly. some sort of, uh, you know, it's probably to do with their leptin and their sympathetic things, things that the surgery hasn't, hasn't dealt with. There's good evidence from uh, wrestlers, you know, who are, or you know UFC fighters, but this study's been done on wrestlers who always have to cut weight, you know, for a fight. Mm-hmm. But they do that even though they're athletes, they you know they have to fight super lean body fat, six percent or something, and then for the weigh in, and then they sort of blow up for the fight. But the point being is that they do that 10, 20 times in their career, right. and their metabolic rate is down by 20 percent compared to people the same size. Um, so you've got to hold people at a fairly low calorie rate, and the fact that you do that means that you for long-term management you got to manage their hunger right because you want to keep them at 1500 not the weight regain so mm. real food so that they get all their rdi's this is the top of the pyramid secondly they've got to eat food that doesn't make them hungry because hunger is is what kills mm. people mm. you know in weight loss so you would say, well, what diet do we know of that is good with hunger? And the answer is a low-carb ketogenic. So you know there's about 70 comparative sort of studies comparing low-carb to low-fat diet. Half of them show no difference. Half of them show a benefit to the low-carb, high-fat diet versus the low-fat diet. Right? So there's always a benefit in low-carb. The real point of low-carb body is that people on a low-carb diet are not told to restrict how much they eat. They're just told they can't eat carbohydrate. So they're not hungry. Mm. And anyone who's been on a ketogenic or low-carb diet will know that, that they're not hungry. And if you're not hungry, that gives you a much better opportunity to stay with your 1,500 kilocalories, well-chosen food, than if you're starving, and the, the lack of hunger on a low carb diet could be due to the ketones, which are anorexic in some certain way, and also increase your basal metabolic rate of your fat cells, interestingly, but also because you're not getting these big sugar swings, which you do on a carbohydrate diet. You know, the ideal human way of eating is that you should have a pretty flat blood sugar level, and maybe it should go up one. Maybe two millimoles at most postprandial, and it should be back to normal very quickly. Whereas, if you're eating these high carb diets, you know, the sugars go up mm. to 10, 12, and then, you know, it might take six hours to come down. And when it comes down, people feel hungry because they're Uh, dependent on sugar you know and sugar of course then generates frequent eating frequent eating result is called grazing grazing is the biggest enemy of weight loss
0: yeah you must get a lot of job satisfaction from seeing patients come into your office who have lost a lot of weight and they're so much happier and healthier thanks to the surgery
1: oh absolutely I mean it's Mm. an amazing field to be in It can be frustrating as well don't worry (laughs) As we see, sure. you know, we pull people's safety blankets off them, they sometimes get a little bit irritable for a while. But it's interesting, the overwhelming response I get, you know, when I see people twelve months later is the, they will say that uh wish they'd done it earlier or it's mm. the best thing they've ever done. And they're saying that in front of their husband or their wife. So it's a bit of a tough call for the partner, but okay. but it it really is giving them a completely different life, you know. Mm, mm. So if you're a 140-kilogram mum and, you know, you take your kids to school and they get teased because mum's big and, Mm. you know, there's that aspect of it, your kids Mm. are ashamed of you or embarrassed about you, you can't play with them you can't run after them you know you should be playing soccer with your kids when they're five and mm-hmm. ten you know you shouldn't be incapable of doing that you know you as far as we know you only live once and you should be the best you can for your age you know like you shouldn't be at age 40 biological age 70 or 80 you know because mm-hmm. you're wasting the precious gift of life if people really embrace the whole journey and they embrace the surgery and the dietary change, they can effectively craft a completely different life for themselves.
0: And I'm sure you would uh, you treat one family member. Do you often see other family members come in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. we
1: often see like a whole series coming through. They send out the, the, the test pilot
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then as long as it goes well. And sometimes it gets to the point where, you know, BMI 28s, 9, turn up and want mm. surgery because everyone else in the family is now normal weight and they're the ones who feel overweight. But of course, surgery is directed, as you know, BMI 35 and above yeah. because even though it's very safe, I mean, the mortality of sleeve gastrectomy is points of a percent in Australia, in the Australian order, it's still an operation and it still has a risk. And we, you know, try and match the risk of obesity with the risks of the intervention. So you wouldn't sort of have a sleeve gastrectomy on someone who's five kilos overweight. That would be silly, although it would work a treat, you know. <laughs> I'm sure it would. What
0: What do you do for those patients?
1: Because I'm a surgeon, no. so I don't manage obesity from a medical perspective. No. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel sort of sorry for people who do, but because there's very little in that space beyond mm. dietary change. But I, I think that focusing on insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia and designing a diet around that, which is the therapeutically carbohydrate-restricted diet, does give people you know, an opportunity to manage the sort of 5, 10 kilo weights pretty efficiently, but more importantly, make them metabolically healthy, which is really what we should be aiming at, not whether you're a six pack or not. No. Bum looks good or bad, you know.
0: Do do some of these patients have an unrealistic expectation of what they're going to look like when it's finished? Yeah, I think you know expectations
1: are often unrealistic. So Mm -hmm. the role of myself and the nurse practitioner who sees people is to give them an honest appraisal of what we can Mm -hmm. achieve and what we can't achieve, and Mm -hmm. what the sort of downsides and upsides of everything is. I think we generally see people at least twice. We give them lots of written information, both. From our own content and YouTube videos that are very good. There's some very good people out there now talking about these things. And because I believe that the more people understand what it is and what it isn't, the better they're going to do. Them. And the other concept is that you only want to do weight loss surgery when you're good, ready to go and want to make these changes. Mm. You don't want to be forced into it yeah. because you'll regret that. You don't want to be doing it for someone else. It's, mm. it's, just, it's going to be you on the bus, so you want to make sure you're, that you're on the bus for yourself. But the overwhelming evidence for weight loss surgery is that it improves your quality, and your quantity of life. And that's a fairly, uh, you know, pretty significant thing. If you think about that, people do surgeries that are obviously quality of life, such as hip replacements, knee replacements, etc., which is pain when you walk, limping and stuff. But it doesn't prolong people's lives and it doesn't improve their blood pressure and all that. And I'm not in any way having a go at that sort of surgery. I think it's wonderful for people who need it. Mm. I'm just saying that, you know, weight loss surgery does so much for people in so many domains, almost mm. every organ of their body improves. So, maybe we should talk a little bit about what's bad about it so we don't. <laughs> We've, uh, so, made we it to don't get this miracle, yeah. One sided here. Yeah, no, definitely.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I'd love so to hear of more about it.
1: Anyone who has an operation can die from the surgery, and mm. um, the mortality in bariatric surgery is well less than one percent so it's sort of equivalent to say gallbladder surgery or hip surgery or something like that and it's been rendered very safe because of the use of keyhole surgery and also period, period sort of anesthetic techniques and preoperative preparation with compounds like formulae uh really improved things a lot. But certainly there is a perioperative risk, and the risk for 50%, if you look at the mortalities, 50% is going to be perioperative heart attacks and strokes, that sort of thing that can happen under the stress of any surgery pulmonary embolism, that type of thing. and the mm. other half will be related to the surgery, which is usually going to be anastomotic leak mm-hmm. uh, or a staple line leak, which means non-healing of something, and that mm. will cause an intrapulmonary infection. And you know the, the rate of that with the surgery is now well less than sort of one in 500 and um, for primary cases, uh, as in non redo cases, I would say it's even much less than that. I think our personal rate for sleeves is something like one in 4,000 for primary operations. Um, and if it's detected and treated, it's not going to lead to mortality, but it'll lead to some increased hospitalization and often re operations, which are not nice. So obviously, we do our best not to get that sort of issue. If you look at one of those quality of life, domain things that look at every every aspect of you, your psychology your gastrointestinal tract your joints your cardiovascular the only one that's negative is your eating one because obviously when you have weight loss surgery you know in class mm. and i don't see that as a problem but you know people need to be told that they're not going to be able to go to the Sislas all you can eat, grill and get them money. On yeah. Yeah, they're going to have to accept eating that three small meals a day, 500 calories, 1,500 meals a day sort of thing. So there's going to be an imposition on their eating style and certainly for the first 12 months it's going to be difficult. Uh, with the sleeve, uh, we can get some reflux probably in about 15 almost 20% of people. And that will often need to be treated with medicine and occasionally re operations and fixing the hiatus hernias. Uh-huh. And that's pretty much all we see with the sleeve. With the bypass, we'll have some extra issues occasionally with stoma ulcers or bowel obstruction that needs surgery. Uh, probably the most common cause of reoperation following any weight loss operation is a cholecystectomy because the rapid okay. weight loss will cause gallstones in a significant number of patients, mm. and if they're symptomatic, then a laparoscopic cholecystectomy is done. That's no big deal. It's a fairly straightforward keyhole operation. Yeah, and then people need to be, you know, we have everyone, including sleeves, bypasses on multivites, vitamin D, D slash K2 long-term, and some will need iron supplemental or even infusions, and B12 will need to be given to most gastric bypasses and some sleeves. So there's going to be a requirement for my, micronutrient supplementation long term so that's sort of like doing an annual blood test to see what's going on you know people are, are um, understandably nervous about surgery oh, you know like um, i'm a surgeon and i wouldn't have an operation unless i really needed one no of
0: course yeah it, everything comes with a risk and i suppose it's just weighing up that risk and your quality of life and your life expectancy and sort of
1: it on? Yeah, so one of the sort of things we like to do is when people talk to us, they usually these days have got a friend or family member who's had surgery, so they're pretty, pretty switched on. But if they're not, then we usually give them one or two people they can ring and talk to so that they mm-hmm. can get an unsolicited sort of non-biased view so that they can I mean you can obviously read whatever you like on the internet but you can definitely do real life patients to see what's what it's like
0: yeah there's a lot of keyboard warriors out there and I I don't know if I trust everything they say Mm -hmm. so to have some sort of trusted person to speak to I'm sure would be very reassuring for your patients
1: yeah, well, I mean, we don't select them. We just ask people if they're happy to talk to someone. Most mm. people are, and uh, mm. I don't really know what they say, but I don't think they scare too many people off.
0: <laughs> no, no, exactly. So, if if you had one piece of advice to someone to become healthier, what would it be?
1: Eat, eat real food. Very don't good. eat ultra processed and processed mm. food. Just eat real food. Yeah, mm. because. Yeah. Metabolic health is really what's important exactly. in terms of mortality. And, uh, you know, if you can stick to real food, you will lose weight and introduce, uh, you know, not boot camp, but a bit of walking, mm. good night of sleep, stress management, that sort of stuff. All these little things all add up, you know. You've got to try and get them mm. as much right as possible. But uh, if you had to pick one thing, I would say is eat real food.
0: Mm, that's, that's great advice. Thank you. Are there any resources that you would suggest our listeners could use to assist them with their own weight loss journey? So, I like for health sort of food
1: advice. I like there's a guy on YouTube who runs his own YouTube called Sten Ekberg, E K B R G. And he's a, a holistic doctor in the United States. And he's got like about 45 videos and he explains mm. things in a very accessible, somewhat painstaking way. <laughs> 20-minute videos and you can learn so much about, um, about things from him. So he's, he's really, really good. And um, then there's a guy who does, you can do, there's a PhD scientist who studies energy and particularly fat cells called Ben Bickman. Bikman, and he does some podcasts. So if you go on a podcast service, you can and like his thing on chronic illness, why we get it. He's he's like the expert on insulin resistance, know.
0: Mm-hmm. So he's
1: if you've got a scientific bend, he's good to see. I think Jason Fung, uh, F-U-N-G, Jason, he's written The Obesity Code, which I think is a highly accessible book to non-medical people to read and very measured and sensible and I think uh, very useful. No, that's and, uh, fantastic. Robert, and the other thing, if you really think you've got an issue with sugar, watch Robert Sywart. He goes under the uh, label Doc, Doc, com and he's also got his own YouTube channel, and he's really focused in on this whole sugar addiction. And as he's a bariatric surgeon in Florida, and he expresses that extremely well. The whole concept that sugar, and particularly fructose, you know, is a is a drug that's been added to our food source, and is not something that. Uh, our body has any capacity to deal with in a healthy way
0: fantastic thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and we really appreciate your time today john and thank you for coming on the program
1: all right it's a pleasure being here see you later
0: thank you thank you for listening to the show And for further information about weight loss, such as recipes, and our range of shakes and other products, please visit the Formulite website. All advice is provided as a general guide only. Please consult your medical professional before starting any weight loss program.